This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, as we begin the last week before Election Day, there is a stark contrast between the candidates on the realities of coronavirus and breaking overnight five aides to Vice President Mike Pence test positive for the virus, including his chief of staff. Campaign 2020 has finally entered the home stretch. With President Trump barnstorming the battleground states. His strategy? Downplay the virus and play up to his crowds of supporters. Well, we have 10 days and, uh, you know, nothing worries me. But in Florida, we're doing very well. North Carolina doing very well. But the COVID-19 situation across America is definitely not going well. Friday saw a new record of nearly 84,000 new cases, and experts say that will soon get higher. You know why we have cases? Because we test so much. And in many ways, it's good. And in many ways, it's foolish, okay? This country and their reporting systems are really not doing it right. It's all I hear. Turn on television. COVID, 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 COVID. By the way, on November 4th, you won't hear about it anyway. For former Vice President Joe Biden, it's a much different scene and a much different sense of reality. Do what you do. Democrats now do socially distanced drive-in campaign rallies with cars honking instead of chants of support. He's given up. He's quit on you. He's quit on your family. He's quit on America. This is going to be a dark winter ahead unless we change our ways. All because this president cares more about the stock market than he does you. Because he refuses to follow the science. We'll talk with National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien about that new White House coronavirus outbreak and the revelation from top intelligence officials that Russia and Iran have interfered in the election. We'll take a look at where the race stands with just nine days until Election Day. As Americans vote early in record numbers, we'll hear from Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson and the Democratic Mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, Quentin Lucas. Plus, we'll talk to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and in our focus group, voters reflect the parallel reality of the coronavirus. The virus is the virus. It's so small. It's, it's going to do what viruses do. You can't get on television, no matter who you are, and say, take bleach, and you were just kidding. That's nothing to kid about. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. As we come on the air this morning, more than 58.5 million Americans have already voted. Meanwhile, there are alarming new records being set when it comes to cases of coronavirus here in the U.S. Experts say we are facing an increasingly bleak outlook for the virus in the next few months. 
We begin today with CBS national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. Day by day, lab results bear witness of COVID spread and a deepening American sorrow. On Friday and Saturday, new cases nationwide topped 83,000 and have spiked 248% since the start of September. Americans may be in for a grim winter. 31 states are in the red zone for new cases. That's up from 26 last week. 11 states broke single-day records this week. Wisconsin's in crisis, home to seven of the country's top 10 metro areas for new cases. Wisconsin's also a battleground state, nine days before Election Day, as is Florida, where President Trump voted early on Saturday. Uh, I voted for a guy named Trump. <laughs> Presumably, Vice President Pence did too. The next day, five of his staff tested positive, including his chief of staff, Mark Short. Early voting is now underway in all 50 states and setting records in many, including Georgia. Nearly 3 million Georgians have already voted, more than double the record set four years ago. There's a push to the polls here from various groups. One called Black Voters Matter will pass out a quarter million voting flyers. A QR code on each lists nearby polls and real-time wait times in a state dogged by allegations of voter suppression targeting communities of color. If anybody's going to make a decision about you, you need to be a part of that process. And of a separate process called grieving. In Washington, D.C., lies a field of white flags hanging sadly. Each honors one of America's 225,000 COVID dead. That death toll is one of the many drivers in the early vote stampede. I'm coming out to vote. My life depends on it. Even on a Sunday, this Atlanta library is open for early voting. Former Vice President Biden will campaign here on Tuesday because Georgia is considered a toss-up. Our new CBS Battleground Tracker poll out this morning shows this race is tied at 49 apiece. Margaret? Mark, thank you. We want to take a closer look now at two other states. President Trump won both in 2016, but now former Vice President Joe Biden is in the lead. In Florida, he is up two points ahead of the president. In North Carolina, Mr. Biden is at 51 percent and Mr. Trump four points behind him at 47 percent. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto joins us from Westchester County, New York, to tell us more. Good morning to you, Anthony. What is the state of the race? Good morning, Margaret. Well, more toss-up states throughout the South. Those polling leads very narrow. These states could go either way. Let me show you why, starting with some dramatic differences in how voters are evaluating the candidates and the state of the country. First, look at concern about coronavirus. Majority of Joe Biden voters very concerned, much less so among Trump voters. It's that coronavirus concern that's been driving votes towards Joe Biden throughout the summer and the fall. And then put that in context, Margaret. For Biden voters, it's a major factor in their vote, along with personal character, where they see Biden with an edge over President Trump. Less so for Trump voters. For them, it's much more about the economy and immigration and maybe underscoring why opinions just haven't moved on all of this throughout. Big differences in how people view the threats to the country. Trump voters fearing that the country is becoming too socialist, Biden voters that it's becoming too authoritarian, underscoring all the fact that this race seems very locked in at the moment, Margaret. So what are the key groups of voters you're watching? The first group you want to watch throughout election night is women with college degrees. I want to show you big margins in all these states, as in many battleground states, for Joe Biden in Florida, in Georgia, in North Carolina. Women with college degrees have been trending towards the Democrats since the midterms of 2018, and they are still propelling him right now. Even more specifically, look at white women with college degrees, and I'll show you the movement since 2016 towards the Democrats, in this case towards Joe Biden, up from what Hillary Clinton got in Florida, up from what Hillary Clinton got in Georgia, and up from what she got in North Carolina. That's a big part of this. And then I would add seniors. 
This is an important vote. The president with leads in a couple of these states, Biden leading with seniors in North Carolina, marginally, seniors vote. So that's an important part of this. They've been concerned about the president's handling of coronavirus. Biden cutting into the president's margins in what's been a reliably Republican block is also helping him a lot. Margaret? Anthony, this is just such an unusual year. We have 57 million Americans who have already voted at this point. Is there a risk here of misreading these early indications? Well, it's a tale of two groups. First, you look at the early vote, and we estimate about half the vote in all of these states is already in. Among those voters, Joe Biden has a lead. These are voters who have told us that they voted for Joe Biden. And also, if you look at the public voting rolls, it seems like Democrats are turning out more than Republicans. But if you look at voters who are still to vote, plan to vote between now and Election Day or on Election Day, that electorate tilts very heavily towards the president. When we get to November 3rd, it's going to be a case of perhaps the Democrats have a lead and then do the president's supporters turn out in large enough numbers to make up the difference? They have done that before. And I would caution anybody, if you read the early vote or, for that matter, small polling leads and think that this race is over, you will be mistaken. Margaret? Noted, Anthony. Um, but when you look at these three states, are these required for President Trump to have a path to victory? Does he need to swing this? If you look at the map... And then you put these states, hypothetically, back into the president's column. So I'll put Florida, I'll put Georgia, and I'll put North Carolina all back to where they were in 2016, which could happen. Then he's got to go up and win Ohio again, and I'll put Iowa again back in his column. That, on the electoral vote count, gets him much closer to Joe Biden. And then we're back to the upper Midwest, and we're going to watch Pennsylvania, maybe Wisconsin or a couple of those other states to see if he can flip them from leaning Democratic as well. So if that feels a little bit like 2016 or that old Yogi Berra line, it's deja vu all over again, maybe it is. Margaret? Ain't over till it's over, Anthony. Thank you very much. We go now to the White House and National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Good morning to you, Ambassador. Good morning, Margaret. Great to be with you. Uh, once again, uh, the virus has put some of the very top levels of our government at risk. This time, the vice president, we've learned, has had close contact with COVID-positive staffers, yet the White House says he's still going to travel. Uh, he's being classified as an essential worker. How is campaigning essential work? Well, there are the free elections are the foundation of our democracy, so I think campaigning and voting are, are about the most essential thing we can be doing. Couldn't he do it virtually uh, to be safer? Uh, well, I think I think he's taken all the precautions, and my understanding is he's tested negative, as is, as has the second lady. Uh, I did speak with Mark Short today, who tested positive, the, the vice president's chief of staff, and I know he's been a frequent guest on your show. Uh, he's doing well. The symptoms are mild so far, and I wished him, and I, I know you and everyone else does, uh, a speedy recovery from this virus. We certainly do. Um, but these climbing numbers around the country and the news that, once again, the White House is a hot spot is, is deeply concerning. Uh, the, the chief of staff, Mark Short, or excuse me, Mark Meadows, uh, was on another network on CNN this morning and said, we are not going to get control of the pandemic. You were on the COVID task force. Is that the Trump administration policy now that it, it's just out of control? Well, what we're seeing is we're seeing the pandemic. And I want to make clear to all your viewers and, and to you again, Margaret, this came to us from China and, and China did not behave properly from the outset of this. Right. But it's been here for uh, about and, eight months. And, 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 and it's all over the world as well, Margaret. As you know, it's spiking in Europe. Uh, it's, it's running rampant through Europe. I was just in Brazil and South America to sign three, three new trade deals with, with Brazil to help Brazil and America get out of the, the COVID recession. It's running rampant through Brazil. Uh, this, this, this is a terrible virus. A at the end of the day, what, what we need to do is we need to flatten the curve. We need to protect the most vulnerable. We need to protect the elderly and those who are infirm and have pre-existing conditions. We need to protect them. But ultimately, the only thing that's going to stop this virus, there's no magic way. Masks won't do it alone. Uh, more ventilators won't do it alone. What will is a vaccine. And we're on track to have a vaccine for Americans in less than a year. It's really incredible. And it's going to be therapeutic. So that if less you come than down a year? With the virus, when is that exactly? Well, I, I think we're going to have something very, very shortly, uh, and I'm hoping by the end of the year. And, and as you know, there are multiple companies with very promising uh, vaccines that are in the final phases of, uh, of trials. 
But what we've done is we put together an Operation Warp Speed. We bought all these vaccines ahead of time. So, so when one proves efficacious, the U.S. Mm-hmm. military is going to distribute those all over the country. And eventually we'll do what we did with ventilators. Remember, when, Margaret, when I was first on your show and people were concerned that there weren't going to be enough ventilators for Americans? Now we've got over 100,000 and we were able to send ventilators all over the world uh, to save people's yeah. lives around the world. We're going to do the same thing with the vaccines. Well, and we're going to get therapeutics as well. That's how we're going to defeat this virus that came right. from China. And in the meantime, we've got to do everything we can to protect the, the, so the infirm in the meantime, and the elderly. In, in the meantime, should masks be mandatory at the White House? Well, well, people do wear masks at the White House. But they're not and, mandatory. And, and, As we know, well, some of the well, staffers well, to the vice president don't wear them. Well, a, a lot of people do wear them. And at the NSC, they're mandatory. In, in my shop, they're mandatory. And we've had them on the, they've been on the watch floor at the, the White House Situation Room from the very outset of this. Yeah. But even masks, Margaret, I, I, I was one of the early proponents, as you know. I, I, I called this thing early. I wore a mask early, and I still got COVID and survived it. Uh, you know, I want everyone to know our hearts and the president's heart just goes out to the people that have lost their loved ones and, and the families yes. that have an empty chair. We, we love them. God bless them. We're praying for them. But the way to stop this virus, again, that came to us from China are vaccines and therapeutics. And we're going to have those very soon because okay. of the, the strong work of this administration. Okay. CDC says uh, well into 2021. But I want to ask you about election security. I know you're very focused on that right now. Um, what do Americans need to know about whether their votes are going to be accurately counted, given the foreign interference the administration uh, highlighted this week? And do we think of Iran, China and Russia as the same in terms of posing a threat? So, so it's a great question, Margaret. I think the best thing that, that I heard this morning was on, on at the outset of your show, where you talked about how many people have voted early and how many people are going to vote. The best way for Americans, I, I don't care what party you're voting for, what candidate you're voting for. I mean, I've got my preference, as you can imagine. But get out and vote. That's how we defeat our foreign adversaries that are seeking to, to sow discord among Americans. Let's get out. If you vote early, great. If you vote on Election Day, great. If you vote absentee, great. But get out and vote. That's how yeah. we stop the, the plans of our adversaries. And I was, re- I was really pleased to see what you're doing. As far as what we're doing, I just held a principals committee, uh, committee meeting last week here at the White House with the heads of all of our agencies, the heads of all the intel organizations. And we are doing everything we can. And I want to make a distinction between election interference on Election Day and elect, trying to influence people. So there's lots of efforts to influence people, like these Iranian efforts to hurt the president by sending out these, these emails from the Proud Boys saying that uh, they know how you voted. Your vote's secret. Every American should understand that their vote is secret. Uh, and that was an Iranian effort to hurt the president. Is that the, Russians, the U.S. The, intelligence community's assessment? I know the director of national intelligence said it, but I've been told that was his opinion, not the uh, intelligence community's I, I, assessment. That's, that's every assessment I've seen. And... Uh, and I, and, I, and I think you're seeing the same thing. Microsoft had a report on election interference, so, so our election and influencing. So you're seeing the Iranians do it. You're seeing the Russians and the Ru- people And the intelligence on, on community's conclusion was that Russia was trying to undermine Joe Biden and thus to boost President Trump, which was not specifically said in that press conference this week. Yeah, I, I, I think what all these countries are trying to do, and, and, and China as well, is they're trying to sow discord among Americans. They're trying to create chaos. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it whatever way they can. So, uh, but that's election interference. But what I influence, I want to talk about election interference on election day, and, and that's something that we've taken a very strong uh, position on. Uh, we've 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 told our foreign adversaries that don't yeah. try and mess with the ballots or that tampering, and, and it's very hard for them to do so because we have paper ballot auditing trails for 95 percent of the votes that are cast right. all across the country. And Secretary of State's doing a great there job. There are about seven states that don't have that backup system. When it comes to Russia, specifically on this point. Uh, We heard from Homeland Security this week that hackers have been able to access state and local governments. And the concern is that by getting into those networks, they could somehow threaten election infrastructure. California and Indiana were two states reported by The Washington Post having had those breaches. Can they they change votes? No, they can't change votes. Can they make it harder for you to vote when you show up and show your ID? They they can't do either of those things. And and we got a hold of them early on because we've got great cyber folks and, and we put a stop to it, but there's nothing they can do to, to, to change your vote or to stop you from voting. Uh, I was out in Iowa just recently meeting with the Iowa National Guard, and they've got a tremendous cyber unit. That National Guard unit has stood up to, to help the Secretary of State of Iowa make sure that there's no cyber interference, and we've got that going across all 50 states. You so told me last time you were with us that you personally uh, said to Vladimir Putin's right-hand man, don't change our vote tallies, that's something we won't countenance. It looks like Russia's trying to test your limits. What are you going to do well, about it? Well, 
Well, well, we're, we're, look, we're monitoring things very carefully, and I can tell you there's severe consequences to anyone who attempts to interfere with our elections on Election Day. But, but Margaret, what I also want to tell you is we're also working on other things while we're doing that. I mean, we had a, a historic peace agreement in Sudan this week yes. with Sudan and Israel with a historic peace agreement uh, under the president's direction. Under the president's direction, we've spent this entire weekend, in addition to everything we're doing on election security, we spent the entire yes. weekend trying to broker peace in between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And, uh, we will... Armenia, and Armenia has, has, has accepted a ceasefire. Uh, Azerbaijan has not yet. We're, we're uh, pushing and... them to do so. So uh, there, there's a All lot right. going on uh, with this country. In, in addition to, to the election security issue, in Understood. addition to COVID, we're also, the president's trying to bring peace around the world. And, uh, and that's good for America as well. All right, Ambassador, thank you for giving us that news there. We have to leave it there. We now go to Kansas City, Missouri, and it's Mayor Quentin Lucas. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Uh, Missouri's health department said it's it unintentionally underreported the number of positive COVID cases in your state and has been since October 17th. Can you give us a reality check of what's happening in your city right now? Because we've seen reports that ICUs at your local hospitals are simply overwhelmed right now. Um, what do you need to do? Are you setting up field hospitals yet? You know, we are not setting up field hospitals. We always do have a standby plan in case we need them. But more to the point, this is a challenging time where we have trouble trusting data, sometimes data from Washington, data from our own state. We continue to have independent reporting that shows that there is a significant outbreak in Kansas City, but importantly, in the regions around us. So while our city has a mask mandate, there are counties all around Missouri and Kansas nearby that do not. A lot of those folks get sick. A lot of those folks have to go to hospitals, and there's hospital space in the cities. Mm -hmm. So we're running into real challenges at ICUs and real challenges with the virus. But they're not yet overwhelmed. Not yet overwhelmed, although we do have some concerns about what happens in the winter months as more people are inside, as we continue to see this surge in infections and a surge in deaths. We had more deaths in Missouri in September than we had in any month previously. That has been a huge concern for our area. Uh, in your area, um, the last time you were with us in August, you said you were looking at reducing capacity uh, at bars and restaurants um, to avoid the spike that we saw in other cities. I know the White House advised you to do that. You're seeing that spike now, but your bars are at 50% capacity, same as they were in August. Restaurants uh, can still serve indoors as long as tables are six feet apart. Why haven't you reduced capacity? You know, that's why we continue to enforce a lot of our rules. Just yesterday, our health department shut down, I believe, two bars that were violating certain capacity rules. But here's the real challenge. Uh, we're catching more people who aren't taking the virus seriously. I listened to the ambassador a moment ago who started out by talking about the China virus rather than a challenge in Kansas City or the Midwest or Missouri or Kansas. Um, every time that we issue a new rule, we get a huge political pushback. Masks are controversial. Testing is controversial. Dr. Fauci is not controversial in the president's eyes. That undercuts our ability as local leaders in middle America to try to push back the virus's spread. I appreciate that. But, you know, epidemiologists say the longer you wait, the more drastic those measures will have to be. You'll be your hand will be forced. So why not take these measures that the White House is telling you to take now? You know, we continue to consider that and we might actually take these steps. But here's the thing. We don't live on an island. We are surrounded by a lot of states. We're surrounded by a lot of communities. If we have a rule, but then right across the line, somebody isn't wearing a mask, you can eat inside, you can have gigantic events. And frankly, if the Republican Party itself is having gigantic events right across the line, then that creates real challenges for us. So we're trying to balance what I think is a very aggressive response by recognizing the realities around us. A nationwide mask mandate would be helpful for this country, particularly where it's spiking in middle America. A state mandate would be helpful, and we do not have one, either in Missouri or Kansas. That's the reason that a lot of mayors' hands are tied. We will do everything we can in Kansas City to keep people safe, including evaluating a bar shutdown. But if every city around you is still loose and wide open and bars are having full capacity and there are huge parties, that's going to be a concern, particularly in the cold weather months. You know, I'm looking at the upcoming election, and I know Missouri doesn't have early in-person voting or drop boxes, and absentee ballots sometimes require a voter to get it, um, uh, to have their ID and to have it notarized. So there, there are some barriers here. Do, are you concerned about turnout on November 3rd? 
You know, I'm always concerned about turnout, particularly voter intimidation, uh, particularly some of the work that's done to uh, misdirect voters. So in Missouri, we're one of 10 states that does not have a pure form of early voting. That said, a lot of people have been voting absentee. 23 percent of Kansas Cityans already have. That's registered voters. We're expecting up to 40 percent of registered voters to vote before Election Day. But particularly in communities of color, particularly in communities where you see voter intimidation tactics work, uh, I am concerned about things such as, which is totally lawful, something in Missouri called poll challengers. And while they can't challenge the person voting, they can stand there when you're checking in and say, this person shouldn't be voting today. As somebody who was turned away from the polls recently because of a snafu, I recognize that that can be a real barrier to somebody who perhaps is going out to vote for the first time. So we continue to tell people what their rights are. We continue to have those concerns. All right, Mr. Mayor, thank you. Good luck to you. CBS News will air a special this Friday at 9 p.m. called The Deciders, exploring the diverse voices of the country's electorate ahead of Election Day. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to go now to Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, a state that this week had its largest spike in hospitalizations since the pandemic began. He joins us from Little Rock. Good morning to you, Governor. Uh, good morning. Good to be with you, Margaret. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about this spike in hospitalizations. Uh, that means people are getting quite ill. Um, your infection rate's also up. I saw that your state was one of 15 that have added more cases in the past week than any other seven-day stretch. This doesn't sound like rounding the curve. No, it's very concerning, and uh, that's a statistic I watch, is both the deaths and the hospitalizations. I do think people who get ill want to go into the hospital uh, quicker because they they can start their treatment, they have a better chance of recovery, and so I think that is a little bit of a factor. Uh, Right now, our hospitalization space is uh, tight. Uh, We have adequate space, but we watch it very carefully. And uh, the spike in cases that we've seen is a concern. I think it reflects uh, what we're all looking at nationwide in terms of going into the winter, combination of flu, uh, the combination of more indoor settings. And so uh, it is concerning, and uh, we're making preparations for it. uh, But we have to really pull together to uh, follow the guidelines that are necessary to keep the economy moving, but at the same time uh, make sure we don't increase that spread. When you say preparations are being made, do you need to set up field hospitals as alternates to your current hospitalizations? We always, as the mayor indicated, have uh, contingency plans, but we have more than adequate space right now in our hospitals. Uh, The challenge is, of course, that uh, there's a lot of other health care needs that you don't want to reduce or put aside because you're dealing with COVID patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have more than adequate uh, ventilators, uh, ICU space. Staffing is a challenge for our hospitals because it's becoming a national uh, competitive environment to recruit staff with contractors to move them 
uh, to hot spots and other places. And so that is the most consistent challenge that our hospitals are facing. Mm-hmm. Preparation-wise, we're working very closely with them, but it's primarily it's individual responsibility of our citizens to do what is necessary and pull together. Increased usage of masks yeah. you see in Arkansas in compliance with the mask mandate that we have in place. That, that's interesting. You are a Republican governor. You are calling for uh, more mask wearing. Our CBS polling uh, through our battleground tracker shows that in virtually every state, when the question is asked, likely voters tell us the Trump administration's efforts have hurt more than helped state's COVID response. Is the fact that the president doesn't wear a mask and endorse it, even though he says he's okay with it, does that hurt your ability to persuade your constituents to do what you are telling them is best for them? Well, it makes it confusing. I mean, he's made it very clear that wearing a mask is important. I saw him wear a mask going into the polls yesterday. But obviously, with the uh, the rallies, uh, there uh, is confusing messages there. Uh, the president, uh, leaders in crisis, always needs to do two things. Uh, one is to be uh, truthful and realistic, and everyone knows that we are going through a very difficult crisis, and it's going to likely get worse as we go into the winter. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you've got to give uh, the American people hope, and that is the vaccine that the administration is working incredibly hard for. I spoke with Secretary Azar this week. Uh, talking about the partnership with the states and vaccine distribution. And so they're working hard at the White House level, but the communication as to what we need to do is an important part wanna, of it as well. I, I want to ask you about that distribution because Pfizer CEO, when he was on our program recently, he said he thinks it's going to be really difficult for the government to handle distribution. And he thought it'd be better if they collaborate with private industry. Are you confident that even when a vaccine becomes available, you'll have full access and ability to get it to your constituents? Well, actually, there will be a utilization of the private sector in the vaccine distribution. Uh, It will go directly uh, from the uh, federal uh, warehouse uh, or from the manufacturer uh, straight to the point uh, of distribution in the state uh, with the state acting more like a traffic cop as to make sure it gets to the right place. But the private sector will be absolutely utilizing this. These plans are still being developed, mm-hmm. uh, but we've submitted our plan. We'll be uh, getting response from that uh, from uh, the White House probably next week. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about another thing that our battleground tracker has shown in three different southern states. And that is um, when likely voters are polled, they say it's inappropriate for the president to lead the chant, lock her up, as he recently did in regard to Michigan's governor at a rally. You know, there's been an FBI plot to kidnap and kill her. That FBI revealed that they had foiled this plot. You're the top Republican on the National Governors Association. There are now threats uh, that have been reported against multiple governors. Do you think it is appropriate to lead these kind of chants, given the level of tension and threat? Well, that's not a chant I would ever participate in. Uh, You know, we need to have a more civil discourse, uh, even though uh, it's a hotly contested presidential race. uh, We need to lead by example. Uh, whether it's a, a president, whether it's his staff, or whether it is a governor, any public official uh, has threats uh, made against them, and we have to take uh, that security seriously. I'm, de- I'm very delighted that she's safe, but also that the law enforcement did such a great job on that case. All right. Governor, thank you very much. Good luck to you. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
we're back now for our weekly check-in with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. You warned us last Sunday that we are entering what could be the hardest part of this pandemic uh, as we get into these colder months. We're seeing these infection and hospital, hospitalization rates really jump. Um, what, where are we on the trajectory as you see it? We're at a dangerous tipping point right now. We're entering what's going to be the steep slope of the curve, of the epidemic curve. We know what that looks like from the spring. We know what it looks like from the summer. These cases are going to continue to build. There's really no backstop here. I don't see forceful policy intervention happening anytime soon. Um, we have a moment of opportunity right now to take some forceful steps to try to abate the spread that's underway. But if we don't do that, if we miss this window, this is going to continue to accelerate and it's going to be more difficult to get un under control. Now, in, in a lot of parts of the country, it doesn't feel really, really bad right now because it's a little bad everywhere. Um, we don't have regions where it's extremely dense in any one region like we did when it was epidemic in New York or epidemic in the South. Outside of states like Wisconsin or Iowa, most states just have a lot of spread, but most states aren't at the point where they're extremely pressed right now. That's going to change over the next two to three weeks. I think things are going to look much more difficult. And so we need to take some steps right now. There is no public support for shutdowns uh, right. nationally like we did in the spring. That's not going to happen. So we need to reach for other measures. Well, it, you heard the national security advisor to the president say the focus on, on just protecting the vulnerable. The chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said on CNN, we're not going to get control of the pandemic. Uh, so is the point here just buckle up? Well, I think that's what they're saying, but I don't think that's what we should be doing. There's things that we can do to slow the spread. I mean, a national mask mandate can be put into place. It doesn't need to be backed up with fines or, or stringent enforcement. We have other requirements that we expect of a civil society that we enforce with, you know, political jawboning leadership. Um, we give people warnings at first. So I think masks are one thing that we could be doing. We need to look at targeted mitigation, starting to close congregate settings where we know spread is happening. Remember, even if we get a vaccine this year, and I'm on the board of Pfizer, one of the companies that's pretty far along in developing a vaccine, even that, if that becomes available this year and we get shots into the arms of the first tranche of patients, which is likely to be the elderly and healthcare workers, they're not going to have protective immunity until 2021, at some point in 2021, no. because it takes time for that vaccine to kick in and you need two doses. So this vaccine is not going to affect the contours of what we're going to go through, which is going to play out in the next two or three months right now. And the CDC has said that masks are sort of the best plan for the moment. Uh, on that point, last week you told us that if someone's going to vote in person, for example, they should have a high-quality mask. You said that meant not a cloth mask. Walk us through what the safest masks are. Well, remember, the masks serve two purposes. One is to protect other people from you. So if you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, if you have a mask on, you're less likely to expel respiratory droplets that can infect other people. The other purpose is to provide you some measure of protection if, in fact, you're around people who are infected. So if you want a mask to afford you some protection from other people, quality matters. A cloth mask may be 10% to 30% protective. A surgical mask, a level two or level three surgical mask, procedure mask, may be about 60% effective. An N95 mask or an equivalent like a KN95 mask, which is a Chinese equivalent, or what we call an FFP2 mask, which is a European equivalent to an N95, that could be 90, 95% protective. So if you want a mask to afford you a level of protection, wear a higher quality mask. If you only can get a cloth mask, Thickness matters, and cloth masks with polyester in them and a combination of polyester and cotton do better. Thank you. Um, at the White House, masks are not mandatory, uh, as we discussed with the National Security Advisor. Um, and we know the vice president had close contact with staffers who have tested positive. The CDC advises everyday people to isolate, to quarantine, if they have that kind of contact. The vice president is not doing it. Is he putting others at risk by campaigning? Well, look, he could be closely monitored. So the short answer is yes, but you can closely monitor the vice president. I would understand why they wouldn't want to quarantine the vice president, but they need to be very explicit about, where, what, they're, about what they're doing and the risks that they're taking. He should be wearing a high-quality mask, an N95 mask at all times. He should be distancing wherever possible. They should be serially testing him. And there's ways to try to provide a measure of protection around the vice president 
or protect other people from the risk that the vice president does contract the infection. But they need to be very explicit about the risk that they're taking. Um, I think everyone right now in the White House should be wearing a mask. Uh, they have an obligation to protect the vice president and the president and not introduce virus into that setting. They certainly have access to proper protective equipment, unlike a lot of other essential workers that don't have that kind of access. They have access to serial testing as well. Finally, one, one last point. One thing they might consider for the vice president is using one of these antibody drugs as a prophylaxis. There's a belief that these drugs would work well in that setting. There's some risks associated with that, but you obviously do not want the vice president to contract this infection. Right, and, and he would have access to something like that, whereas you and I would not have access at this point. Um, on the vaccine, I, I do want to quickly get you on this, because Operation Warp Speed, uh, the administration's effort, announced this week their timeline. They say by the end of 2020, all vulnerable people will be vaccinated. By the end of January, all seniors will be vaccinated. By March or April 2021, they should be able to vaccinate any American. And the head of this, Dr. Monsef Slawi, said he's confident by June, everyone in the U.S. should be immunized. Is that realistic? Well, I think it's aggressive. Look, this is first based on a presumption that these pivotal trials that are underway by Moderna and Pfizer actually read out and demonstrate that these vaccines are safe and effective. We all hope for that. We believe that's going to be the case based on the early data, but you don't know until you turn over the card on those trials. Assuming things go well, um, there is a chance that they could roll out this vaccine in time to get the elderly population in the United States vaccinated, the first dose of the vaccine. But remember, they need to now wait a month to get the second dose, and there's a period of time of a week or two until they have protective immunity from their vaccine. So you're looking really at 2021 until the vaccine really kicks in. In terms of the entire population, I think it's unrealistic to think that we're going to have a vaccine widely available for general distribution and authorized by the FDA for mass distribution until probably the second quarter of 2021, later on the second quarter. Understood. Thank you, Dr. Gottlieb. As part of our continuing efforts to hear from voters in the coronavirus pandemic, on Friday night, we Zoomed with six voters evenly divided on their voting preference. They were also divided on their thoughts about the impact of the virus on this campaign. We're looking at numbers um, across the country. And I I know, Chelsea, you are in Indiana, I believe. Um, So you're right in the middle of the Midwest where there is a tremendous spike right now. What do you think um, the impact will be on the election from COVID? Generally, I think the lack of response is... Um, energizing people to vote. I'm pretty positive that just how chaotic this has all been and that there hasn't been like a very clear, this is what we should be doing, has really frustrated a lot of people. Um, And because of that, they want to see someone else who might actually have a plan or might try and take charge. And what is it that you see in Joe Biden's plan that makes you think it would respond to the crisis? Well, actually, like, listening to scientists. Um, You've heard Trump call Fauci an idiot, which I think is really dangerous. Um, He's gone back and forth. Well, hasn't really actually even taken a position on mask wearing. Um, Joe Biden is at least, you know, for mask wearing. My concern with the coronavirus is, quite simply, uh, there's not been any transparency about it. I'm very concerned about that. When it come, first come up, it didn't seem, and maybe I was missing something, but it didn't seem as important as it should have been taken from the very beginning. But when you make a mistake and say you can take bleach and uh, cure the coronavirus, and then you get on national TV and say you, you were just kidding, well, people are dying. Families are impacted. Loved ones are impacted. Seniors, every, you can't get on television, no matter who you are, and say, take bleach, and you were just kidding. That's nothing to kid about. Will all of you, show of hands, take a vaccine when one becomes available? Mildred, I, I was re- reading that you you miss hugging your grandkids. Um, and you, the social isolation you're in, you still don't want to take a vaccine? I do want to be around for my grandkids. And I think being... Um, you know, a guinea pig, uh, first out, I won't be here for my grandkids and I won't get that hug. So therefore I won't be the first one taking the vaccine. No vaccine is a hundred percent effective. 
you know, especially with the the viruses because they so they mutate so much. So uh, uh, I just think that uh, Trump has put his foot up the the collective butt of the of the FDA to get them to do their job in a timely manner and not just push paper like they uh, bureaucrats typically do. So you would take one tomorrow if it became available. Absolutely, Dave. You too. You're saying yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's not up to him to release the drug. It's the FDA. Mm-hmm. You can listen to Trump all you want, but until the FDA releases it, you're not going to get it anyway. I wonder who all of you think um, bears the most responsibility for the spread of this virus in the United States. Do all of you believe in wearing masks? Can you raise your hand if you wear a mask? Beth, you don't wear a mask? I do when I'm in public spaces where they um, they insist that you do, but otherwise, no. And so when you hear the statistics that are rattled off by the CDC director, you hear Dr. Fauci say wearing a mask could really stop the spread. Why do you doubt that? Because the virus is a virus. The particle is so teeny tiny that it can't even be seen without a microscope. So, I mean, while it, prophylactically, and yes, you know, out in public, it may help. And certainly if I was around someone who was um, older and was ill, you know, I would I would do it. But uh, the virus is the virus. It's so small. It's, it's going to do what viruses do. So I think that your best offense is a really good, strong defense. Be healthy, you know, eat well, exercise well, sleep well. Do you believe that the United States could have done better in its response to the virus? Show of hands. Beth, Dave, and Walter, you all think that the response was adequate. Walter, you've lost friends. How do you respond to an unknown when you have absolutely no idea what it is? They acted to take care of people as best they could, but you're shooting from the hip. Nobody knows. I think the job that was done was magnificent compared to the circumstances. When you look at the population in the United States and the access that is here, why don't you think that America should be leading the way? I think we are leading the way. I think the reason, uh, I, I think the biggest... Uh, Even though we have about 20% of the world's fatalities and 4% of the population. And and all of the traffic that had come into the country with the, uh, uh, with the disease, whether they knew it or they didn't know it. And then uh, in many of the instances, the way the states handled their, or didn't, like New York, completely screwed up the, uh, their uh, response uh, inflated the death rate. So take President Trump out of it. Are you telling me that fault really lies with local governments? On the uh, state level, uh, it, it's gotten to a point, and it, it was obvious from the uh, outcomes in, in New York and New Jersey, that what they did was completely wrong. Somewhere along the line, the responsibility for taking on ownership of the virus and what needs to happen and should go forward it was communicated it's the governors who run the state's responsibility mm-hmm. to do the things. The governors didn't know what to do. I know the governor of Georgia. Well, was nobody did. Their best. Nobody did. Nobody but nobody, did. but the buck stops in my household. What happens here, I'm mm-hmm. responsible for it. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible. So I can't do everything that needs to be done, but I'm going to try to exemplify and take responsibility, acknowledge and take responsibility, and go forward with it. I think it's just kind of wrong to say that Trump couldn't do anything because that interview came out where, I don't remember if it was in January February, he knew how deadly it was, he knew how it was spread, yet he still didn't do anything. He said he didn't want to create a panic. People panicked anyways. I mean, you couldn't go to the grocery store, buy any toilet paper, get your groceries. He didn't say anything. It's not that he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. Well, I think in this case, like, he absolutely needed to say something because people were going around blindly, not knowing what to do. If there was, you know, some kind of response from him, maybe governors, local governments might have had an idea. He did act. He shut down 
he shut down uh, uh, flights into the country uh, for which he was vilified for. Now the same people who vilified him for shutting down the flights are saying he didn't do enough. You can't have it both ways. The CDC even said that, you know, even if he didn't shut it down, it wouldn't have mattered because the virus is already here. And, yeah, he did say something, but he waited months to say something. January I mean, it's, just, it's unforgivable. January 31st. But there was no response nationally to what you states don't know should what do you, until March. But you don't know what you're dealing with. It's just like a fireman going to a fire. They assess the situation and they move in. This is a lot different. You can see the fire. This you can't see. I don't think anybody could have done anything. Better. I want to give Mildred the final word here. I don't think they knew what to do. This, when they started to think about it, you've got politicians and money that became involved. And so the waters got muddy, muddy very muddy. Uh, and I just think um, a lot more could have been done to save lives at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Next Sunday, we will join you from our CBS News election headquarters in New York. Until then, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.